Welcome back to the Always Already podcast. This is B. I'm John, and we're joined today by a very special guest. We're sad that Rachel is not here, um, but we're excited to have some of our other friends and colleagues be on the show for the next couple episodes. Indeed. So B. Um, and so today we have with us Lindsay Whitmore, who is in the PhD program in Women and Gender Studies at Rutgers University. Hi, Lindsay. Hello. How are you feeling about being on the Always Already podcast? Always already excited to be on the podcast with you all. This is one of my favorite new podcasts. <laughs> yes, that's what I like to hear. Glad Sucking to join up to you. us. Early. I know. <laughs> it's very um, Lindsay, before we're going, maybe you want to tell the listeners, since B and I know uh, your amazing interest, maybe you tell the listeners a little bit about them. Yeah, certainly. Um, so my interests are vaguely around queer and feminist theory, um, specifically thinking about um, critical medical studies. My most recent project is thinking about what a queer ethics of care would look like. Um, and I'm also really interested in, in thinking about um, what healing means, what recovery means. So these are some of the things I think about in my work. Excellent. Awesome. Um, Excellent. So before we get going, one note for the listeners. Um, if you want to suggest things for us to talk about on the show, uh, you should email us at alwaysalreadypodcast at gmail.com. We've had one listener suggestion to talk about some LaCloud, which we'll be doing in an upcoming episode. Looking forward to it. So am I. And of course, you should send us advice questions. We have two advice questions for later in the show, including our first ever non-strictly academic advice question, which is excited. Lindsay, are you ready to give advice people in their lives? Absolutely. Okay. It's so much fun. Um, it is, and we're all experts, so it's helpful. Yeah. Uh, um, Looking so, forward to uh, putting my expert knowledge to use. Exactly. Yeah. So before we get started with our discussion of Latour, be very helpfully, upon a couple listeners uh, suggested that we have a kind of a pretty brief summary or overview of the text themselves in case people haven't had the time to read them. So what you're going to hear now is B doing a quick summary of of the Latour from Reassembling the Social that we read for and are going to talk about on today's episode. Hello, Always Already podcast fans. Today's episode is covering Bruno Latour's Reassembling the Social. Subtitle is an introduction to actor network theory. Um, a little bit about Bruno Latour and maybe a little bit about Reassembling the Social, where it comes from a little bit of its intellectual lineage. Uh, Latour himself, um, being the wonderful French intellectual he is, uh, focused mainly throughout his career on uh, science studies, which is, for the most part, um, sociology of science or an anthropology of science. Latour uh, takes um, as a starting point uh, the idea that what we can do is explore the ways in which ideas and, and facts are constructed. Now, originally, um, the book Laboratory Life had as its subtitle Social Construction of Scientific Facts, um, but much later within the science studies movement, especially with publications by folks by like Ian Hacking, um, who wrote The Social Construction of What in 1999, uh, the word social came under fire. Exactly what does social mean? Latour does an about-face. He and his co-author changed the subtitle to the book. It's no longer the social construction of facts, um, but rather the uh, construction of facts or scientific facts. Um, and from that point forward, um, really tries to examine the ways in which we can move beyond so-called social explanations of things 
and look more regularly at associations or webs of association, as it were, um, at a more local level. Um, one of his more famous essays, if you haven't had a chance to read, is One More Turn After the Social, um, which examines the ways that we can look at how uh, nature and culture are actually these two ridiculous um, or ridiculously separated um, concepts and should be rather treated um, as, as something along a Mobius strip. So this particular book, Reassembling the Social, introduces us to the ways in which uh, the sociologists of science, um, if you want to call them that, or science studies gurus, as I, as I have called them in some of my papers, um, have entered into the laboratory and thought about the members and actors within the laboratories themselves, and to think about then how we might reframe the social world, or rather social worlds, in the sense that networks and actors are coextensive uh, ontological entities. Um, networks and actors are, in that sense, co-constitutive. On the one hand, there can be no network without an actor, but the question then arises, can there be actors without networks? Right? So we're kind of throwing out some of the notions of the, quote, individual, but we're also not uh, getting rid of some of the more traditional sociological ideas about a broader uh, structural apparatus. There are multiple parts of the book in which he does some head nods towards Durkheim. Most of his major sociological influences, however, come from Gabriel Tard. The entire book is dedicated to the way we might think of how maybe uh, actors are themselves, if we want to think about it in one way, scientists, constructing uh, realities for themselves in these uh, intricate and interesting and eventful ways. So rather than placing upon them ideological, neoliberal, capitalistic, um, or social, as it were, um, explanations, we actually have to be surprised at the fact, or we ought to be surprised at the fact, that the actors that we study uh, actually possess their own meta-language. They actually know how to talk about their own realities in ways that make sense. And in fact, if we are surprised, then we're doing something right. Uh, instead of telling people that we study, as it were, that they are actually doing it wrong. I hope that you enjoy, and we'll be talking to you soon. Thanks so much for doing that, B. No problem. So all of us kind of came to Latour with a little bit different levels of engagement and background with him previously, right? Yeah. I, this is my yep. first time I've ever read Latour. I will somewhat shamefully admit. openly admit well honestly i i've been reading latour for about two years now um at the behest of paisley cura who does a lot of work around latour as well so um this is the fourth time reading this book i think okay. um which i still every time i read it come back and have to rethink and re-engage and there's something new i walk away with so it's just one of those texts i think so cool. And Lindsay? Yeah, I've read a little bit of Latour, sort of in between maybe what you both have read, uh, parts of We Have Never Been Modern, yeah. and I've used one of his essays, um, How to Talk About the Body, the Normative Dimensions of Science Studies, in a piece that I wrote about uh, addiction in the body, kind of putting Latour in conversation with Foucault. Um, is interesting, so I do want to get back to the Latour-Foucault relationship, perhaps later in the episode. Yeah, and as I mentioned in the introduction, um, there is a very close relationship, not only between Latour's philosophy and Foucault, but also Deleuze 
And um, and not only that, but I mean, throughout the book, he makes consistent references back to his previous work on um, in Pandora's Hope, which is probably one is one of his most accessible books in terms of its essay content. So sure. So maybe we wanted to, I think, start by talking a little bit about agency, because as one of you pointed out to me before we started recording, uh, he uses agency very unabashedly in a way that that tends to be kind of a scary term. I probably can't remember the last time I used the word agency in a paper. Um, but I think he does a really nice job of, you know, I don't want to use necessarily use the word rescue, but rescuing a certain notion of agency that I think is actually really productive. Yeah, I've definitely been hesitant to use that word in uh, recent years, and I felt like reading some of um, some of this stuff was really helpful in terms of thinking about positive, productive ways of thinking about agency and also agencies. Um, that's one of the the main things that I took away from this is that uh, Latour is really interested in obviously complicating the idea that there can be any sort of unified agency. Yeah, so I mean, you know, on page 45, he has this quote that says, we are not alone in the world, we like I is a wasp's nest. And it reminds me, I think in a previous episode, we were talking about Gabriel Tard for Deleuze and Guattari. You were talking about Well, I was, I was bringing him up, <laughs> which um, Latour does in this book several times, and I think it, it just goes back to, you know, everything is society and society is everything. So it's just, it's in, in ways in which we are relational. Um, and that is, I think, in one sense... Um, in other sections of the book, when he talks about things being relative, mm -hmm. he talks about it in this Deleuzean sense of being relational. Mm -hmm. um, but, like, it's a different kind of relational or notion of relationality than is usually used in critical theory or, critical, yeah. you know, he uses the term critical sociology because he's trying to kind of get us away from saying that, to, at least in my reading, away from saying that, you know, relationality is, like, built into this whole notion of the social that he says doesn't actually explain anything or doesn't actually, can never actually be powerful enough to do all the things that certain strains of critical theory or sociology or whatever say that the social does. Um, and it's a different kind of relationality than one that says, well, we're all stuck in, like, this vast social and continually being acted on or determined or interpolated totally by this social, mm -hmm. right? So it's not that model of relationality. Absolutely. No, I mean, I think that he's really um, interested in bringing us to the local, to kind of specificity in thinking about um, how multiple actors are kind of encountering each other in constantly sort of proliferating diverse uh, circumstances and, and what happens. How do we make people do things? How do we make things do things? These are the questions that, that he's interested in terms of thinking about what agency is. Well, is it how do we make things do things, but these things are already doing things, right? Yeah. Right, that there's a reciprocity always kind of happening, I think, at the same time. Well, at least as, as we as uh, you know, social scientists have a if tendency. We even identify. We, if, we're, if we're, quote, social scientists, what he's identifying as a we, sure. um, have a tendency in the field to say, uh, you know, we can give a overbroad specification as to why someone is behaving the way they are. You know, we say it's market forces, neoliberalism, and the like, that he would take the task almost immediately, or right. the state, um, he would take the task immediately as this overbroad idea um, that suggests, oh, this person is behaving this way because, um, but rather looking at this 
I believe somewhere he says, you know, um, the individual, the human being, is a moving target of multiple agencies. Mm-hmm. And at any given time, you know, he borrows this, I, I think, it, um, you know, he talks about underdetermination in the sense of what constitutes at any given moment the agencies that are overtaking the individuals. That's his own words, right? Overtaking the individual. Um, and so. Uh, you know, it brings me this idea. So agency to, to Latour seems to be rooted in this concept of a, of a human being always being a mediator in the sense that they're always, you know, if, forgive the expression, they're always an event. It's always surprising what a, what an individual does. I think somewhere he also says, I'm always surprised by what I do. Right. Um, well, he talks about action, not something that's transparent, but this is page 44, is a node and a knot and a conglomerate of surprising agencies. Mm-hmm. And also the action isn't kind of under the full control of consciousness, right? And so that's one of the things that we think about when we traditionally talk about agency, right, is like this idea of choice or or free will or sort of taking control. Um, and Latour seems to be interested in troubling the fact that action can be something that we are even conscious of, mm-hmm. right? Um, well, yeah, I think that he would – so on the one hand, he would be quick to, you know, kind of throw darts at – a quick psychoanalytic judgment about action, sure. right? Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time saying sometimes you're just not aware. Some people aren't aware. But we ought to give them the leeway to at least have the ability to explain um, what they think is happening in their lives at a given moment. Right, and this yeah. is the really hard balance isn't quite the word I'm looking for, but we'll go with that balance he's trying to strike between saying, you know, we have this like full liberal autonomous agential subject, right? That's not going to work for him. But neither is, you know, the subject that is overdetermined or completely interpolated or just, you know, kind of performing some mimesis of the social forces that are acting upon them. Yeah. Right. It's somewhere in between there that he's trying to locate action and agency. Um, and it's really hard to talk about it in that kind of medium range. Right. Because he says the medium is actor network. So it's like there's a simultaneous mm-hmm. uh, occurrence that there is this thing, this human, maybe we, we should say is the actor within a network that are that are operating simultaneously on one another. Um, and how that action op- looks like, or what that action looks like, I should say, is problematized in the sense that we can't immediately assume, right, from the outside, um, that this actor within this supposed within the so-called network is is going to be doing these following things all the time, you know, because it is predetermined. But I don't even know. I fully, if if Latour, if I would say, fully explains that, or maybe even. Uh, satisfactorily explains how you can have simultaneous action on the part of the network and the actor that gives and okay it's, a, it's an introduction so I, yeah. you know I'm not supposing that that's his project here but rather a kind of a, a salvo to all other social scientists to say whoa 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 think about what's happening in these simultaneous ways multiplicity right think mm-hmm. about all the multiple ways that people and networks are engaging mm-hmm. And part of that is moving away, so it's not just humans that are acting, right? But right. it's objects. Yeah. It's um, other forms of agencies that aren't limited to the human subject. That I think is one of, I mean, for me, I found to be one of the most um, inspiring parts of at least the selections that we read is moving away so that not only, you know, is he saying we need to rethink our notion of the social um, so that it's we don't just have pretend that 
we as the critical theorists have this emancipatory knowledge of the people out there who are just mimicking these social forces that we read as oppressive and we can tell them that they're like they don't understand what's going on mm -hmm. um but then he also wants to say that we can't make you know we can't make nature dumb yeah. right objects have agency objects are as part of these networks objects are act are acting upon us as well yeah Oh, and that they're acting upon us in unexpected ways, mm -hmm. I think, is, like, a really interesting piece that he's taking. Um, so, I mean, he, he talks about in, in the second source of uncertainty piece that we read um, on page 47, the mistake we must learn to avoid is listening distractedly to these convoluted productions and to ignore the queerest, baroque, and most idiosyncratic terms offered by the actors, following only those that have currency in the rear world of the social. Um, I loved that yeah, that definitely. little selection um, because it's, it's making me think about kind of what sorts of movements and correspondences um, and even resonances are sort of happening in uh, particular actions that we don't typically attend to because we don't understand them as being part of something that can do action or mm -hmm. have action. So it seems to me, right, that he's saying then if we're talking about critical theorists, we're talking about social scientists, that the only time we cash out um, an individual's you know, language or narrative or statements is when it fits into our already compartmentalized conceptual framework and you know and that's what i think is so beautiful just as in the sense of uh you know beautiful that he comes out just right out and says it it's like this is wrong-headed you know we're actually doing a disservice to the people that we're you know that we're supposedly studying and we're also you know in the process uh convoluting all kinds of really amazing relationships that exist between humans and non-humans and one of those things that he mentions is right um which always like boggles my mind the way he describes is uh, the fishermen and the and the scallops, right? Yeah, um, I was just looking for that citation yeah. while you were talking, actually. And so you know the fishermen are responding to the migration of these scallops and are causing these fishermen to behave in certain ways more than just simply market processes to say that what the actors are doing right then and there are relating to one another and those actors are actually as much the scallops. As, as they are at the fishermen, mm -hmm. as it is the, you know, and he mentions the oceanographer who's attempting to trace the migration of the of the scallops, etc. Um, so then I guess maybe the question that I have, because I loved that passage when he's talking about that, is then can we put them, you know, he says he wants to say we can only call something the social after we've traced all these associations and networks and so on. Can we put market forces in there in the social? Like, are, is, you know, this is gets into something we were talking about before the show but you know how, how is Latour how can we critique capitalism with Latour that's like the very polemical super broad question that's a good question because I don't I mean I honestly don't know how to take this as a critique of capitalism but maybe to suggest that it is a component in the way that we would be explaining certain kinds of activities so sometimes net, he mentions you know sometimes networks are built in such a way that you know, all the ingredients are there and have been, in many instances, kind of pre-made for certain kinds of activities. This is in a section called How to Keep the Social Flat. So he's aware of those social and market, or at least those market forces that enter into actor-network relationships. Um, but leveling a critique, 
I think it um, would have to go in, I don't know, would it have to go in a different, how do we use that as a critique? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's a tough question for sure. I mean, one of the the key kind of metaphors that he attacks in over and over again in in the text is talking about this sort of invisible hand of the market and that that is something that really exemplifies the way that we kind of bundle the social together into, um, you know, kind of this behemoth force. And the way that we talk about capitalism and neoliberalism um, in critical contexts a lot of times does really feel like that, right? Yeah. Like I struggle with... Um, trying to develop ways of talking about capitalism and living in capitalism and under neoliberalism um, that don't feel completely useless, right? right. That, like that don't, um, that don't have openings for uh, imagining other kinds of uh, relations and ways of being um, because capitalism is, you know, sort of all encompassing yeah. and, and flattening. Um, so I wonder if this would allow us to, to sort of start to break apart that uh, that kind of um, hold that this quote-unquote invisible hand sort of has on us. Totally. I mean, this is where I think there's an affinity here with something that I, like, pestered B for months to read and then he read and loved it, um, is J.K. Gibson Graham's oh. The End of Capitalism as yes. we knew it, right? Because they want to make a similar critique to the one that I think Lindsay just made by saying that, you know, so long as we on the left and some broad royal we, you know, talk about capitalism as something that's a total unitary system, then we've kind of just constructed this monster, and they use the metaphor of the monster that we can never actually overcome or never actually slay. But instead we need to think about flows and processes and interactions and these kinds of things. And so that's why... You know, and this is actually, I think, a similar thing in a different register to one of the ways that Deleuze and Guattari enable us to think about critiquing capitalism or like any of these broad forces that I, sh I surely use in this kind of overarching, totalizing way all the time. And maybe that's where kind of Latour gives us some sort of kind of criti critical agency, yeah. right? That it's not that we can say that there's this fully formed capitalism that exists before all the interactions and practices and processes and agencies and all objects and all of these things that act to something so that if we're going to say there is capitalism or there is neoliberalism, it's only after we've traced all the processes and interactions that go into it so that that like maybe shifts our you know, our, our attention to particular processes or practices or agencies than saying we have to overcome or critique this one giant force, which actually we can't ever overcome. Yeah. If it's this giant force that exists before all these other stuff, all well, these other things. That's exactly right. Which is a Marx's point too, actually. Oh yeah, Marx is, yeah, he definitely makes that point. I mean, Latour has said, you know, if, if A, if A is capitalism, and we take A as the causal force of B, C, and D, I think this is one of the paragraphs, yeah. and he says, well, if it is such that B, C, and D can be explained by A, then A should also help to explain some of the differences between B, C, and D. But if we start to notice that these differences can't, in fact, be explained by A, then perhaps what we need to be paying attention to are these differences, and it goes back, again, Deleuze, he, he owes a, a debt to the way that Deleuze talks about difference in that sense. And I think of, you know, um, and this is not my thought, because uh, we were sharing notes earlier, or at least I saw um, on John's notes, that there is a definite uh, 
uh, connection between what Latour is saying here in performativity and Butler's performativity in a sense of having action at a local level transforming, translating certain kinds of scripts that we might otherwise think are, you know, in, in one sense, absolute. If we, if we treat capitalism as being this monster, but we forget that people at the local level uh, translate and transform. You know, if they are mediators in actual events, then they're transforming these so-called scripts in ways that when you go and you talk to someone on the street, did you know that capitalism is oppressing you? Um, they're going to look at you and, and kind of giggle, like, what are you talking about? Um, how do you communicate this idea to someone whose own meta-language, they have their own language describing mm -hmm. their world and the ways in which they operate in it? Mm -hmm. How are you supposed to tell them, oh, by the way, everything that you think is right is wrong, right? As a critical theorist, do you, you know, Latour is asking us to take a step back and say, as a critical theorist, do you have the authority to come in and say, nope, my meta-language is better than yours? Right? No, my narrative that I've created about the social world and the, cap the neoliberal world um, better explains the problems that you're facing. And, yeah, so I just think about this because I use Latour for my own purposes in describing gender relations mm -hmm. and how people's perceptions of gender and their practices, epistemic practices in, in particular, um, are transformative. Um, they are mediated uh, and are not easily explained by you know, these sort of macro level ideas of, of what gender constitutes. So, yeah, I mean, I think that his sort of focus on the project of interpretation, that kind of different disciplinary backgrounds presume to kind of put onto, uh, you know, any particular experience is really useful. And, you know, he's also really useful in kind of calling out the kind of arrogance that circulates in academia, right? Absolutely. About presuming to know, presuming to be able to interpret some local specific experience in, a, you know, in a larger context. Like he talks a lot about um, embeddedness and, and the way that, um, you know, particular frameworks for interpreting, you know, will put a person in kind of this embedded framework and then interpret out of that. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that his work is really helpful, especially for people who are interested in challenging these kinds of boundaries that exist between, you know, kind of academic interpretations of experience and actual ways that people live in the world and understand the world. And, and talk about the world. Yeah, I just want to mention, I'm sorry, I don't no, want to no, steal no. you. Uh, so, you know, there's a part of the book in which he's talking about, and, and again, this links up specifically with the way critical theorists and most social scientists talk about the social world as explanation, where he says, um, well, one of the reasons why I take this stance is because I attempted this way back in the, you know, 70s. I attempted to have a social, uh, you know, construction theory of scientific fact, and it blew up. Mm -hmm. Right, and in fact, he changed the book title. Right, uh, Latour and um, um, Woolgar changed their title from um, uh, "Laboratory Life: The Social." I think it was the social construction of scientific fact to just the construction of scientific fact. Mm -hmm. Over the course of I think five years or ten years or something like that, it changed the title because social construction wasn't doing the work that he thought it. Well, I mean, honestly, it wasn't doing any work. Um, the word "social" just seemed to add an element that, you know, just, it, it blew up in the sense that scientists were reacting in ways that were very vocal. And Lindsay, you and I were talking about um, just before the, the show is in, in the ways that, well, science seems to, or science 
seemed to respond to the idea that their facts, their knowledge was being socially constructed. But no one else in the, in the so-called social world seemed to respond as vehemently when sociologists went in and said, oh, no, 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 by the way, all this stuff is socially constructed. Mm-hmm. You know, your gender is socially constructed, your sex is socially constructed, your re- all these relations constructed um, as fetishes in a way. Um, and it's just interesting that he would say, oh, this is the reason why my, po- you know, why this project is taken on, you know, the, the framing it has is because if you can't do science or if, if in this particular sense, if science isn't or science responds the way that it does, then maybe all of these other domains, um, we're, we've had it wrong. I don't know if that's the, if that's right headed, but it's certainly an interesting way of responding to social construction. So. I'm here with Amy Schiller, who is a PhD student in political science at the CUNY Graduate Center and a freelance writer who has published in The Atlantic, The Nation, Daily Beast, American Prospect, and many more, um, expert meme maker and a dear friend of mine. Amy, thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you for that kind introduction, John, my grad school sensei. <laughs> I can only hope to aspire to such uh, great heights. So the reason we wanted to have you on is to talk a little bit about two articles you published um, in May and then perhaps turn into a bit of a broader conversation about kind of the relationship between philanthropy and um, capitalism and neoliberalism and such. So the two articles, which we'll link to um, in the show notes, are Is For Profit the Future of Nonprofit in the Atlantic and Philanthrocapitalists Can't Buy a Clue in the Bafflers? So Amy, maybe if we could go one by one and kind of briefly, um, for the listeners, kind of walk through the main arguments of those two pieces and kind of get into the specific issues from there. Sure. Happy to do so. So the Atlantic piece is for-profit, the future of nonprofit. Uh, that piece has been sort of in the works in my mind for a while, ever since I attended a conference in 2011 where Mark Echo, the clothing mogul, sure. um, said very proudly to this group of aspiring social entrepreneurs and young philanthropists that, in fact, for-profit was the future of nonprofit because in his experience, attempting to engage social change through government institutions was just a hard slog. It w- it had a, quote, terrible return. Okay. Um, it was boring. It was unsatisfying. And that instead, if we wanted to, in his case, end uh, corporal punishment in schools, the way to do that would be somehow through gamified social media mm-hmm. platforms and other such consumer-friendly mechanisms right. that would somehow mobilize people and energize them more easily than going through the channels of, um, of democratic governance. So expanding off of that, the whole piece is really about um, channeling people's desire to contribute in some way towards positive social change, contributing 
uh, excuse me, channeling that through uh, consumer behavior. Mm -hmm. So we see this very visibly in Warby Parker glasses, the one-for-one model, same for Tom's shoes. Uh, Product Red was the uh, AIDS AIDS, uh, fund partnership. So I'll admit I have a Project Red iPod that I inherited from my family member. Well, you know, not everyone's perfect, even you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the not everyone is perfect. <laughs> um, so the um, but I like that you clarified that it was inherited, like of you course. didn't make a conscious choice. So you know, you're exempt. Um, the so really that piece is about um, trying to reconcile to what I would consider irreconcilable ethical behaviors. Uh So there's the ethical, there's the the question of the ethical behavior of being a consumer um, and whether or not that can be done ethically or attempted to be done ethically. Um, And then there's the question of wanting to somehow contribute back, somehow wanting to engage uh, being able to bring clean water to people in the developing world mm-hmm. or provide eye care or what have you to people who are in need. Um, and my my overall issue with this is it's taking a desire to be of service to somebody else and turning it around and making it an activity that's in service to ourselves. It's right. in service to our sense of self, our presentation mm-hmm. of self. Um, it's it, it's an, all about our convenience. Right. Um, so it, we can feel good for buying these things that are helping these poor other people in these poor other countries. Right. We feel really good about ourselves and it's made very easy yes, for us. Indeed. So uh, now is there, I mean, a specific kind of time frame or set of processes or institutions that you think that or even is it a pivot in the first place to thinking about philanthropy as consumerism or marketization as some of the terms you're using in the piece right um or is it more kind of a longer gradual shift well that piece uh the the term marketized philanthropy Mm -hmm. was first used by professors angela eikenberry and patricia nickel uh, in a paper that they wrote i believe in 2006 um, at Virginia Tech University. It's a working paper. It was not published, okay. um, but I can find a copy of it and provide it for the notes. Sure. Uh, so that was in 2006 that they published that paper, which suggests to me that um, this is certainly within the last 10 to 15 years that this trend has begun. Um, and maybe when we get to broader questions about what this, what this represents, I would say um, the the overall trends of consumer market research Mm -hmm. demonstrate that people want their consumer activity to generate this kind of feeling. And so the, the catch up of the partnership, the cause related marketing is one term that's often used, um, corporate social responsibility. I mean, these are all, um, subfields of, um, some hybrid of social and, and economic capital that have emerged in the past 10 years. I, I couldn't outline the exact delineation uh-huh. of that history. Um, I'd certainly be willing to look back on that. I'm sure that will be part of whatever dissertation. That's a scary word. I write. Uh, uh, so uh, I will get back to you in somewhere between <laughs> two and 14 years Perfect. about how that's going.
So maybe before we get into some of these broader issues, I wonder if you could also perhaps outline your Baffler piece, which actually has some interesting things to say about Bloomberg, among many other kind of bigger topics. Right. So whereas the Atlantic piece focused, uh, philanthropy really sits in between uh, the market and government right. as a, like another sector for... And I definitely will talk about what exactly that middle place, you know, what effects that produces in a minute. Exactly. Um, and so whereas the Atlantic piece really dealt with the intrusion of of a market-driven sensibility mm -hmm. into philanthropy, um, the philanthropy and often that then it carries over into an undermining of public institutions okay. and the importance mm -hmm. of public space. So, for example, what we see in education reform is the use of philanthropy as uh, almost a um, political reform laundering. Right. Uh, so, whether it's <laughs> so it's philanthropic institutions that are essentially funding political not even campaigns, but political initiatives right. to undermine the, you know, the institutions uh, that already exist or to disrupt them mm -hmm. to use, and I'm using the heaviest of air quotes Good. here, um, in the parlance of Silicon Valley. So um, the what was notable in the Bloomberg piece was his first interview after leaving the mayor's office of New York City. He uh, he really mentioned several times that philanthropy just can't compete with government in scale. Mm -hmm. um, and he gave what seemed like eminently reasonable, but in his world of, uh, you know, flush arrogance, sure. I would say. Um, not just him, but his whole cohort. They were like refreshing this remark that money simply, that philanthropy simply can't, uh, can't attempt to overtake the role of government in providing social services and governing institutions. And he cited this one example I thought was so delicious about a hedge funder who cornered him behind a cactus at a conference <laughs> who said, I want to raise a billion dollars from the hedge fund community to fix public education. Because okay. you guys always think, you know, just throw money at the problem. And, you, and we're it. smart. We're the smartest guys in the room. We can fix it. And Bloomberg said, well, the budget of New York City's public schools is $22 billion annually. Mm -hmm. um, and in the piece, I said, this is like that Sean Parker in the social network moment. He <laughs> says, a billion dollars isn't cool. You know, it's cool. $22 billion <laughs> a year. <laughs> and so that sense of... Um, of humility and understanding of scale, I, I could only conjecture that that was due to Bloomberg's years in public service as the mayor, um, and that he had somehow, in this way, we would almost never expect a plutocrat to feel sort of humbled by the by the democratic institutions and their responsibilities and their scope. Mm -hmm. um, and I, and so then I took it a step further and I said, listen, if, if his, one of his funding priorities now that he is turning his attention more, more broadly to his philanthropy is government innovation. Why not just uh, fund some program to have, major Fortune 500 executives take on bureaucrat jobs so that they, too, could gain some sort of, you know, sense of their own uh -huh. significance or lack thereof mm -hmm. or importance within this larger structure of governing society um, within the hope and the somewhat perhaps facetious and futile hope that they, too, would emerge with the kind of reasonable self-regard, at least in this one interview, that Bloomberg reflected. Right. I mean, do you think that, we're, that there is any chance of you know, puncturing the self-importance of a number of these 
um, philanthropic capitalists, right? So, you know, you have the Bloomberg example. We right. have, I mean, the recent expose on what happened with the Newark public schools and Zuckerberg's money. I mean, do you think that either in an intellectual sense or in a government sense or in the nonprofit sense that there's uh, an, an increasing awareness of the limitations of this or is these kind of particular examples that are somewhat isolated? No question there's an emerging um, understanding. that. But what's difficult about it is even those who are in positions of uh, close encounters mm-hmm. with this mentality that and, – and let me just state it a little bit more specifically, and I'm going to quote David Sirota here okay. in an article he wrote uh, for, I believe, In These Times okay. this week, where he said the, the mentality is billionaire cash is needed – to force public institutions to do what they need to do. Mm-hmm. There's a sense of authority and legitimacy that comes with having amassed this amount of money that, by the way, is not new. Um, there is a new wrinkle that I'll get to momentarily, but okay. the sense of, the sense of uh, having, a, having amassed money makes you wise in matters of all forms of you know, governance, right? The Carnegie's, the Rockefeller's. Perfect. Right. Those are, those are the perfect examples. So that's not new. What's difficult to articulate is, um, is what is, what's wrong ideologically with something that seems instrumentally positive. Okay. Um, so I think there's an understanding that there's something wrong with the authority that these uh, philanthropic capitalists claim for themselves, and there is something unsettling mm-hmm. about the attempt to merge uh, market activity with philanthropic activity. Right. So, and that's why, frankly, the I think these pieces generated conversation and generated um, a following uh-huh. a bit uh, because there is a sense that things are wrong. It's hard to articulate why because what it means, and I'm sure you understand this and your listeners do, uh, it means sort of taking, like having the, having the courage and the vocabulary to identify the values outside of neoliberalism and outside of efficiency, innovation, Mm -hmm. convenience, optimization, outside of these sort of shiny yet hollow terms that are often thrown around, Mm -hmm. um, finding the alternative to those and naming it, um, you've a, you are often made to feel like some sort of marginal pansy. If you use like, if you use the language of like, like there are things that are more important and that are, you know, that may be more difficult, but require uh-huh. our attention. Um, and it's, and it's just hard to get there. Michael Sandel did write a book, uh, what money can't buy, I believe okay. two, a year and a half ago, it came out, um, where he actually did a very nice job of breaking this down, but he, I don't think he ever once used the term neoliberal and okay. I don't think well, he so positioned let's, himself let's that maybe way. maybe unpack that a little yeah, bit more. Let's... I mean, what, you know, if we're going to think about neoliberalism and kind of broadly as a set of, you know, the subsumption of activity and thought and rationality to kind of market-driven logics or something like that. Sure. Um, what's particularly neoliberal about these shifts in philanthropy over the past decade or more? The, uh, it, it, the attempt to achieve social ends via p- almost purely economic mm-hmm. means. Um, so the attempt to circumvent the... Uh, the process of making social change that that you and I, I think would agree is inherently different and must be inherently different in order to counter the influence of capital right. um, and that particular calculus mm-hmm. that comes with amassing it. So um, the Newark example that you brought up as illustrated in that New Yorker article, uh, 
there was an attempt to create reform in education without engaging any of the local political players or even just the parents themselves right. who were involved in the system. There, and that's actually the level at which there was a revolt. On the social level, these meetings were so um, volatile and uh-huh. tense when it came to meet with the, with the Zuckerberg-funded administration sure. officials – um, and the Booker appointed administration officials um, to basically say you've you've given you've you've bypassed stakeholder input, um, and so and and again this was all done in the name very explicitly in the name of saying entrenched interests mm-hmm. by which they mean unions. Right. Let's be honest, entrenched interests are going to oppose the things that we want to do, whether it's tenure like uh, excuse me ending tenure or performance reviews or other mechanisms uh-huh. they're going to oppose that and so but we essentially like we have the we have the information uh, the data and the analysis we we quote know what works um, and we want to just make something happen again going back to this throwing money at the problem mm-hmm. issue um, so again it's the attempt to end run around <clears throat> around consensus building and around democratic process sure. um, and and a commensurate reverence for the um, the transferability of economic wisdom into the social sphere sure which really is what underscores neoliberalism right and so do you think then that I mean philanthropy I mean potentially is in some ways kind of perfectly positioned, right, to facilitate that transfer um, of market logics into government, into governance. Um, So, I mean, do you think that it's kind of like it's a capture of philanthropy as philanthropy always operated in this weird position and operated as a kind of, you know, relay or transfer point between the market or between capital and governance? There was a fascinating article um, in the same Atlantic series that I published Mm -hmm. in. It was by a professor named Maribel Mori about the relationship between philanthropy and the White House. And she pointed out that when Carnegie wanted to fund like a National Institute of Science research, Uh his um, attitude, his affective position towards the White House was one of like, I am here in service to my nation. Mm-hmm. He, his letters, his correspondence with Roosevelt um, reflect um, a, a uh, I don't want to say a supplicant position because that seems ridiculous, but they reflect a, um, a humility and a deference, I would say, mm-hmm. to, uh, to the president and to government as the stewards of the nation and him asking to be um, sort of enabled to serve the nation. Right. And she contrasted that um, that sort of uh, expression with the recent convening of 100 young philanthropists at the White House mm-hmm. Office of Social Innovation, um, where, full disclosure, I know some people who attended that meeting, mm-hmm. um, even though it was closed door to the media, and the only person they could get to write about it was one of the attendees, Jamie Johnson, heir <laughs> to Johnson & Johnson, Anyway, side note. Um, so, and it was in the style section. So, of course. Um, so that what was reflected in that uh, in that portrait was the White House seeking the um, the approval and the partnership and the commission. Like, who is reaching out to whom? Right. Mm-hmm. The White House is reaching out to try to engage young philanthropists. And as uh, Maribel Mori put it, these these young philanthropists seem to have sat back and waited for an idea or a feeling to touch them. Right. right. Like they were the ones sort of like you pitch me, uh-huh. I don't pitch you. Right. So um, 
So has it always occupied this space? You could certainly make the argument that, um, that yes, philanthropy has always been in the business of, um, of justifying private capital uh -huh. and justifying the accumulation of private wealth. It has at times been in the business of creating subjects and right. creating citizens, um, sometimes in partnership with government mm -hmm. and sometimes not. Um, now what's happened is, uh, the shift is that it's, it's finally gained the Trump power, the Trumping power sure. over the other institutions through which it navigates. Mm -hmm. Um, and people have sort of fallen under its spell. Right. We're back for the whole world's favorite segment, my Tumblr friend from Canada with special guest Whitmore. Yay! Um, hopefully we can use all our Latour talk to influence our beautiful advice that we're about to give. Of course. So our first question, this person didn't say whether they wanted to be anonymous or not, so we'll call them M. So M writes, I'm an undergraduate student and I've recently submitted a couple of paper proposals to philosophy conferences. Congratulations, M. The trouble is, I've never been to an academic conference before and don't really know what to expect. Do you have any tips for attending your first conference and giving papers? Best wishes, M. Well, I remember uh, when I was not an undergraduate, not giving uh, philosophy papers at conferences. So congratulations <laughs> on that. Uh, so you were ahead of the game. Um, I would say actually you should go in sort of a little chest thumping, you know, a little bit of that going on. I wish you all could have seen the actual I actually did chest some, thumping. I did some um, chest thumping just now. Um, honestly, you know, th this is an opportunity to meet people. It's an opportunity to... To, you have to look at it like this. An opportunity to present your work, yes, but an opportunity to discuss competing viewpoints and just, in, in one sense, I don't want to think, oh, well, I get to use the word, it's networking, right? Um, <laughs> so it is a network, but it's a really great time to actually talk to people w with whom you might be working in the future um, and to see, you know, how people are discussing these ideas in the field in action. Um, and so my tip would just to be go, you know, to go in with, with the expectation of meeting people, of having fun, actually having fun, of course, treating it like work cause it is. Um, but, uh, you know, to the, to the expectation of, you know, going to the panel and, and feeling proud that, you know, you're an undergrad amongst a lot of grad students presenting, potentially presenting a paper that you're really proud of. So when I did my first conference presentation, um, I was pretty nervous about kind of the actual presentation aspect of the experience and also the kind of more social networky uh, part of the experience. So I kind of made a deal with myself that I was going to focus on uh, kind of directing my energy towards the presentation and that I wasn't going to worry a ton about the networking part of it for this first conference. Um, and I think that that worked out pretty well. In fact, actually, when I, you know, sort of did focus on the presentation and gave a, a pretty great presentation, <sighs> if I do say so myself, and, uh -huh. you know, kind of had some great conversations, whatever, um, the networking part of it sort of came naturally after. It wasn't something that I felt super 
super pressured to do. Um, you know, I also kind of let myself like leave for lunch. Like I needed a little bit of time to like decompress and not sort of be in that conference environment the whole day, which I still find to be pretty helpful. Um, you know, kind of letting myself get out of there for a minute because it can be really overwhelming um, and it can be really exhausting um, even when you're not presenting just sort of being in the presence of people who have really amazing ideas and you know these sorts of conversations dialogues sometimes you know more kind of tense arguments like it can really drain you more than um, more than I thought that it ever would yeah. um so learning to take it easy as well is i think a big part of it so both of you two gave really awesome positive advice so i'm going to play naysayer worst case it's true like conferences can be alienating yeah conferences can be no fun conferences can happen where you don't network and don't meet people conferences can happen where no one gives you feedback on your paper so i think it is important to yeah like, be prepared to know that that happens. And that happens to people whether you're an undergrad or a grad student or like have been doing academia for 30 years. You you know you can go to a conference and have a bad conference experience. So if that happens, um, not to like get too down about that or not to like prevent that prevent you from going and sharing your work in the future. Um, maybe let's also think about like very practical tips um, of like a first time conference goer. So I yeah. think like both you gave some already, but even just to focus on that a little bit more, but I think the taking breaks, you know, don't expect or try to go to every session. Yeah. Um, you know, if there Absolutely. are four sessions in a day, go Agreed. to two or three sessions, right? And even three is arguably pushing it. Yeah, that bit, is right. Mm -hmm. You know, go away for lunch. If you have time to go away for lunch, you know, try to enjoy if it's in a different city, like go see some stuff in that city. I think is all good advice. I mean, for the paper presentation itself, I mean, you know, uh, one day I can hope and aspire to like just be able to talk for 12 minutes and like have no problem. Um, you know, but I have to like do an in-between like rehearsing my speech and going off the cuff and reading from something that's in front of me. And like, I personally find that if I have not my paper, but what I'm actually going to say at the conference itself, you know, my 25 page paper cut down to what I can say in 10 minutes or 12 minutes or however much you have in front of me to rely upon. And I practice like saying that word for word, you know, in the days leading up to it, that allows me to be a little bit more free flowing when I'm actually presenting um, the paper itself. So I think that that's something helpful to think about. Yeah. I would say don't go over the time that you're allotted. Absolutely that's don't. Way to make people yeah, mad at you. Sure. Like yes. Other participants, your discussant, the audience, et cetera. Um, what else practically can we give? Um, I mean, one of the great kind of tricks of the trade that I've learned is that if you have friends who are also attending the conference, like have them come to your panel and have like a smart question or yeah, two. Yeah, that's a great relief effort. Yes, absolutely. Um, I presented at a conference last uh, fall and John was actually there and a couple of other friends were there. Um, and my panel was very low attended, but I had some excellent, smart people in the front row with really engaging questions mm -hmm. <laughs> already formulated. Um, and so, you know, we ended up having a great conversation together, but, you know, it also sort of gave the facade that, like, um, you know, that people were kind of 
responding and engaged. Not that you were not engaged, but it's helpful to avoid that kind of dreaded silence uh, that, you know, you can sometimes fear and that may actually be a reality if the conference, you know, is small, whatever, your panel is not well attended. Your panel's like the 8.30 a.m. Yeah, yeah, it's just the natural state of things. You can put pressure on your friends to go to your 8.30 a.m. panel. Very true. Right, I mean, and, and for some people, seeing a friendly face in the audience may induce more panic or anxiety um, but you know if that's not you um, you know I would definitely suggest I mean, I mean you know what the bottom line is you know sometimes you screw up sometimes there's gonna be awkward yeah. silence sometimes you're gonna say something and you're gonna fumble over your own words but you you know you get back up and you give the presentation of this paper and you've got to be proud of it I mean you, you're presenting your work and it's a part of you and your intellectual endeavor so I mean John it works for you for instance to have you know a, a shortened version of the paper it works for me rather i've noticed to actually just have a pad of paper with key themes words that will trigger something um that i can then sort of um riff off of mm -hmm. during the presentation um and hit the key more or less the keynote so um and and that works for me if it might work for you and um but you know you you might find right in practicing beforehand which which is better right yeah, I tend to sort of break a paper down into bulleted points, which yeah. can can sometimes actually just be like my paper in bulleted points. Yeah. But for some <laughs> reason, having the text chunked up like that it, is it it's easier for me to kind of make uh, a little asides or, or whatever, to make it seem a little bit less formal. Um, although I see people presenting papers by reading them all the time, um, and I guess maybe depending on your discipline, you know, whether that's more accepted or less accepted that's varies. Yeah. Which means, you know, talk to people in your discipline, right? I haven't been to a, like, explicitly just philosophy conference. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, there, there's the, every discipline is going to have its own norms. And it's probably worth, you know, talking to uh, someone who's been in a conference before, whether it's, you know, a friend, a colleague, you know, a teacher, whatever. Yeah. Any other advice for first-time conference goer M? You're going to rock it, we know. Just the fact absolutely. that you listen to the Always Already podcast means that you're like... You're on top of the game. Absolutely. Also, one more important yeah, yeah, thing. Totally. Um, try to wear a, an article of clothing that's not going to show your massive sweat stains. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. Just yes. Be strategic. All right, so our second advice question and our, like, first less academic-specific advice question comes from L in the Northeast United States, who writes, I'm an academic. I've primarily gone out with, dated, and been in relationships with academics. I have a first date with somebody who's not in academia coming up next week. What do I do? Fail or fail? <laughs> <laughs> no, we're just kidding. I know, just kidding, totally kidding. Just can, kidding. You can totally work it out. Well, one of the most awkward things in, in situations like that, <laughs> just run away. Um, start crying in the middle of your, your date. No, just some of the most awkward things that come up is when they ask you, what do you do or what is your work on? And when your work is on something like epistemology or you're, you're investigating, I don't know, 
ontological problems in you know through Latorian metaphysics. I don't know, you know, and you can't just open that up, you know, over dinner or even drink. So in you that gotta, case, the date the date, date is going decidedly, to fail, yes. and the date will be a fail. The date will definitely be a fail. Um, and so I think it's it's just navigate just navigating that first question of like what do you like well oh what do you do well I'm I'm in a PhD program oh that's great sometimes you actually in many instances get around even having to explain exactly what you're studying which is awesome mm-hmm. because I hate having to give the whole cocktail one liner um, about what my dissertation is on because it. It never ends up just being the one-liner because I feel like, oh, it's, I need to say more. I want to say more about it. Yeah. And, and I don't want to alienate the date, right? Nevertheless, so. like, maybe it makes sense to, like, practice with a friend, and preferably a friend who's not an academic, be like, let's, you know, scheme and practice. Is this going to sound like, weird? Does this sound weird know? when I say this? Yeah, yeah. Not, no, but seriously. Like, a know. non-academic friend, preferably. Yeah. yeah. Because they can sort of give you perspective on, like, is this uh, registering in terms that are accessible? No, mm. totally, right? You know, maybe it makes sense to, like, well, I think if I talk about my work in, like, these three sentences, it's in a way that, like, feels true to what I'm doing, but also feels like it can generate a conversation with someone, whether they're, you know, connected to that academically in, like, a very strict way or not. And, you know, you might find that the person finds whatever you're doing quite endearing, so the fact that you come across as a total nerd, um, total nerd, like, maybe it's, yeah, exactly, it's like, oh, keep talking in that academic jargon, it's so cute, (laughs) you know, it's like... That's something that might actually be working to your advantage, so um, they might find you even more alluring because, you know, you're, you know, it's like, say something nerdy to me, kind of say it. Ontology. (laughs) Yeah. Ontology, epistemology. Yeah. Microphysics of power. Of power. Yes. Power relations. Oh, okay. I think we're going a little bit too far astray there. Um, But yeah, I think, you know, maybe practice, but sometimes like just wing it. Maybe just go in and I think we've learned to be as much more spontaneous and free flowing than I am. Yeah, well, I mean, like I've uh, look, I've like I've had to, I've had to go through the experience, and it it can sometimes be awkward, but you know, ultimately, um, you know, many, 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 many people in my experience kind of find it a little endearing when you come across as a little geek. Yeah, another thing that I found uh, is a good sort of entry point is to talk to people about your teaching if you are yes. a teacher. That's like a way that I know a lot of people can sort of identify with what I yeah. do. And I'm like, oh, I teach this class. Um, you know, it opens up people's own college experiences mm-hmm. if they went to college. Um, you know, it allows them to ask you all sorts of questions about, you know, funny student stories. That's true, whatever. yeah. I don't think that. Um, and that, you know, even when, you know, my family is not a, a family that has any experience in academia. Um, so one of the ways that I, you know, this isn't the same context, but connecting with them over over my teaching experiences is often way more productive and sort of rewarding um, because it's a very concrete thing. Yeah, <laughs> and not only is it a concrete thing, but it's a concrete thing that says like, oh, I'm interested in talking about these things with others. So it's mm-hmm. not like, well, I'm an academic, so I have this and alienating like, stuff. Yeah. I do. But instead, I like, yeah. all right, so I, I talk, I 
have conversations and like we try to learn together about like these things and you know well and recently like this thing that happened in the news I talked about Beyonce like this in a class and it gives you a good, really good discussion opening for the person the mm-hmm. too and be like oh what do you not yeah, not, well, yeah. What do you or think? like or... even to have the person that you're talking to be like oh yeah like I read this article or oh right. I was thinking exactly. about Beyonce or talking with my friend the other day and here's what I think yeah and then like you totally you know de elitized the conversation while still like engaging with something that you care about and also feel proud that you have a dating life um while you're in academia (laughs) and grad school so i think that should be on some level a pat on the back yeah all right well thanks yeah your date's gonna go awesome it's gonna be perfect ask them to subscribe to the podcast yes there if you like our advice or if it works for please you. do <laughs> um Lindsay, thank you so much for coming on thank the you show. Lindsay. yes it's been a pleasure thank um, you be as always thank you for thank your brilliance you, and insight oh hush keep going yes uh, <laughs> <laughs> Bee's wearing a lovely tie today Absolutely. um so oh we can, well, we, it's funny we talked Rachel last week B is the, probably the best dressed out of the three of us well, I try um, on occasion so. to I taught this way. morning. I taught this morning. That's the only reason why. Sure, I rolled out of bed you into the Indian like I, <laughs> like I woke up in a tie and dress shoes and skinny jeans. Obvious. Perfect. Totes um, So as always, you can go to our website, alwaysalreadypodcast.wordpress.com. Find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash alwaysalreadypodcast. Um, subscribe to us on iTunes or some other uh, podcast program of your choosing. And email us uh, requests for things for us to discuss on yes, the show. Yes, please do. Because um, we're going to integrate those into our schedule. Um, and most importantly, send us some advice questions. And as you can see, we have lots of thoughts about lots of other things yes, we besides do. just <laughs> um, going to conferences, which is important nonetheless. Yeah. Um, so thank you, Lindsay. Thank you, B. Bye. Bye. already podcast it is a creation of john mcmahon b altman and rachel brown visit our website at always already podcast.wordpress.com email us at always already podcast at gmail.com and find us on facebook subscribe to us in itunes or another rss feeder thank you very much to jordan cass performing radioheads no surprises and you and whose army for the music in today's episode and we will see you next time for some always already b-sides on the tour in episode four on ernesto mcleod Thank you.